Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Freakin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs, reviving my old Sachs and the Cinema segment on Chicago Radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence, Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview, British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We continue our series with Terry Gilliam. Many directors have fought with studios and producers over artistic control and budgets. It comes with the territory. But few have made a career out of conflict the way Gilliam has. For the American-born member of Monty Python, he's the guy who did the cracked animation. Just about every project he has directed has been an uphill battle. His dream project, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, took decades to complete. It came out 16 years after a documentary on its woeful struggles. When he came to Chicago in 1986 to talk up his dystopian masterpiece, Brazil, the brashly irreverent Gilliam could only laugh about having to go rogue to get his version of the film shown in the U.S. after the geniuses at Universal insisted that he tack a happy ending onto it. That he avoided such a travesty was a testament to his dogged spirit. Wrote Time Magazine's Richard Corliss, the good guys, the few directors itching to make films away from the assembly line, won one for a change. In our freewheeling conversation, Gilliam discusses his enduring fear of each movie being his last, why he never read Orwell's 1984, which nonetheless inspired Brazil, Brazil star Robert De Niro's generous contribution to the making and selling of the film, and how could we not talk about the legendary vomit scene in Monty Python's Meaning of Life? I start by asking Gilliam about how his work as an animator influenced his filmmaking. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's 
it's definitely that I started I think Time Bandits is trying to do it and this has gone further more getting closer to animation getting and not just animation but it's more it's, it's cartooning or caricaturing and that's where I began as, as a cartoonist so you, you distort things in cartoons they're not realistic they're deformed they're distorted and I just I suppose I just see the world that way my, my eyes work that way I'm not a good realist drawer or painter I don't I'm constantly shifting it and distorting it and I've always been fascinated by you know big contrasts scale changes all of those things they seem to be part of the tools of the trade that constantly they certainly give me pleasure and I like the fact I think with the cartoon the, the cartoons the animation what was happening there it was it, being cutouts I was always laying things on top of it. There's a montage approach to, to working. So you'd have engraving with a painting with a bit of airbrushed work and some of it be medieval. And nothing was ever just clunk. That's what it is. Everything had layers to it. Uh, and things, juxtapositions would make things uh, seem other than what they were. And my mind always, I just enjoy that. And, and it grows. I think the other thing with film that I find is because being an animator I'm used to thinking in 24 frames a second and, and each of those frames is a lot of work mm -hmm. and so I think I tend to you know make things possibly too textured at times just cramming in so much stuff because other you know a director would normally think of a sweep you know a scene or you know the, I'm actually thinking frame by frame practically and when we're cutting it it actually gets very like it very obsessive I'm down to whether I cut two frames out or one frame out but that on that cut, you know, it's, it's that f fine. I, I tend to overdo it, and then you have to go back and repair it. But I get I see, it's sitting on that machine yeah. night after night, just watching it go by and changing a little bit there. And I, I mean, I've watched other people cut, and I know they don't cut like like we've gotten. I mean, I work with the editor Julian Doyle, who also sh was shooting a lot of the special effects as well. He, you know, I've been partners of a sort since Holy Grail working in different ways and you know he'll cut the scene then he'll give it to me and I'll cut the scene and he'll go back so we bounce them back and forth so the thing's always shifting and changing and he'll get to a point where he doesn't can't go any further and then I'll sit there for all night long working on it and it's and I've actually got to feel I've got to hold the stuff and move it actually get into the scene and it's that, that thing of I've seen so many other directors who let, let the editor just cut the thing together. They come in, they look at a rough cut, make a few comments. The editor goes back to work, tighten it up, and that's the end of it. And I sit there and get into a scene. And I know I've got to, it takes a certain amount of time to get absorbed into it. And then you sit there and you start juggling that little piece of film and pushing it a little bit. And then there's, you remember there's an outtake where somebody just did that. And that works with the movement. Suddenly the scene's being rewritten as we're going on. I'm changing it because I suddenly have a new idea that makes it makes it work better. Uh, Do you ever reach a point where you're concerned that there may be too much, that it just, it, it may be too overall, it's just so much and for so long? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, I, I, that's my great fear, that I'm, it's overkill, it really is. I'm, I'm so desperate, because I'm always convinced each film is my last film, I'm trying to get everything I've always wanted to say into this one, and it, it tends to overpower. I think... And I know I've seen enough people, I've seen this film play all over the place, I know how it works, and I know for a lot of people it's just too much, and they become threatened by it. Yeah. They, they, 
I think they become resentful of it because it seems to be it's too much coming at them and it looks intelligent. And so and they begin to suspect other people are laughing, other people are enjoying and I'm not I'm being made a fool of somehow and they feel they begin to really hate the film and there's a walkout period about 45 minutes in. 45. Yeah. And I think they half hour and they know they don't like it. It takes them another 15 minutes to get brave enough and then they walk out. And and so uh, that's the way it is. I don't. It, uh, I can live with that. I, I know when it works that it works so phenomenally well on people, and that's what I, that's what I'm more interested in. Not well, it really creates a world uh, that you enter into at your own risk, and once you've given way, you're there. You know? <laughs> so, but just the, jeez, uh, yeah. There's, there's, I can. I mean, there's specific things that that come right out of your animation. I yeah. Mean, the, these. Um, um, out, you know these these massive hunks of, of buildings <laughs> coming out of the ground, and uh, yeah. that great great shot with Jonathan Price with the double image against the mirror, which I thought was that was hilarious. I know I, that was that was one of those nice things because it wasn't in the it wasn't in the, in the script. It was just like I just want to do mirrors. I like again it's it's this thing of House of Mirrors. It's magic. Because like, I used to as a kid, I used to play with magic a lot, and, and this idea of reflecting things and. You can't tell which is the image and which isn't. At one point in all of that battle, I actually turn the shot around. I flop it. So, uh-huh. in fact, you see where normally the real where the the real person is and the image is there. It's the other way around, and, and nobody ever spots it. It's just one of those things. That, and I think sublimely it does something. It just you're not sure anymore. It just shifts you a little bit. And it's I don't know. I I, I just like trying those things to see what happens. Uh, and I. Because a lot of what we're doing, to me, is unknown territory. I, I, I'm just feeling, we, we were feeling our way through it. And you don't know how far you can push an audience. And uh, I think, because what we, what we do when we're cutting the thing, we're screening it all the time. I mean, even mm-hmm. with scenes missing, all sorts of keep showing it to people, friends, neighbors, you know, relatives, uh, anybody will come. And they're all small and they're casual. And you really get, after a while, you get a sense of what you're doing. And, and so when we're finished, we probably screened it 25 times when the finished film is done. And I know how it plays by then, you know. Oh, sure, yeah. I was just, it strikes me last night, I was watching the uh, Looney Tunes uh, tribute with uh, Chuck Jones. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's hard to just watch excerpts from those things, you know, yeah. which is what they did. But it, it struck me that, I mean, they had to have, that Tex Avery maybe even more had to... Yeah. Warp your mind at some point. I, I must have because I mean, I'm I'm very bad at remembering the influences on me. I just yeah. I don't think about them. I don't, sort of, but I know I, I I know they influence me. Somebody spotted one the other day that really I hadn't thought about at all. But were you at all a fan of the early Mads magazines? Oh yeah. Well, Willie Elder's yeah. things, you know, with ten billion things going on in each frame, and. Well, I mean, I worked for Harvey Kurtzman, and, and Willie was a friend. And that was, they were idols in my childhood. Those are, those the early Mads were so wonderful. And I, Brazil is a bit like that. It has that density. There's so many things going on. The marginal. Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. You're looking everywhere. And it's, uh, I think what happens is what I'm shooting. I've lived with it so long. I know it so well. I, and I'm. I'm trying to keep it alive for me, so I keep adding things in shot as we're setting up the shots. I keep shoving a little bit more in here, doing a little bit of that, just to keep my own energy going to get through the day. And uh, by the end of it, it's just the same. It's 
do have this black, real black viewpoint a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. Black in terms of black humor. Uh, yeah. There's a kind of almost bloodness, bloodiness to what to what goes on. Uh, I think it's a combination of of bloodlessness being very predominant in the world we live in. I mean, I think things are being drained of blood. I really feel. I mean, corporate corporations, the people that work for larger. Television is bloodless, you know. I mean, it may be bloody, but it's bloodless. It's not, you know. It's and I see it all the time. Things are losing their their, their visceral content, <laughs> and it's and I keep trying to put all that back in. I think I the the, the black humor. I don't know. It's only that. It's the thing I was talking to my wife about about six months ago, and and she was suddenly saying that she was uh, becoming afraid. She was thinking about death, which she'd never thought about before. And it's because, you know, we've got kids and everything, and some of the kids bring it to mind very quickly, your own mortality. And uh, and I, I said, oh, it's amazing. And I said, you've never thought about it seriously before, your own death. I didn't know. And I said, I think as long as I can remember, every day of my life I've thought about my own death. Death scares the shit out of me. It's everywhere around me. And I don't want to go without screaming a lot. And somehow, I think that's what black humor is about it's about this awareness that it's any moment it's just going to go <laughs> taken away and so I, it's my way of dealing with it is learning to yeah. laugh at it yeah. but there's, there's also kind of an edge uh, not so much in the movies which is maybe a question there um, of kind of uh, not spitefulness but it's kind of like to the viewers hey if you if, if stepping on a head and squeezing out the thing you know bothers yeah. you then to change the channel yeah. this, is, this is the world view that's being offered here but I think we're growing out of that I think there was very I mean it always early Python that was a bit of my attitude to a lot of it it was, it was always to shock people to challenge them uh, because nothing else on television was doing that mm. it was all entertainment you sat in there you got your TV dinner and it washed over you and I was always trying to do things to make people wake up you know like, shit they said it's like that, and 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 I, I think the others. Not everybody in the group was the same. That's why it was what it was. But uh, there was a sense of that of just trying to shock people and and daring them to like it. And and we always did one of the things. The group is was fairly used humor, really, not in a defensive way, because you know we would diffuse things immediately. If, if it was going very silly, we'd have the colonel come in and say, "Stop it! This is silly." About hopefully just before the audience was going to say that. You know, we always took took it away from them, you know. Uh, yeah, I know. And so it went on like that. And it was us, in many ways, doing it out of insecurity, you know. And wh one of the things that... Why I started more and more making my films is... I felt, you know, Python, what we were doing, because it was just comedy, was limiting. And then in Time Bandits, things like the scene with Sean Connery and the little kid, all all of those scenes were the hardest thing for Mike and me to write because our instinct was always to be clever mm -hmm. and make a little joke about it, do something. And to write something that was just simple, direct, and love, you know, loving or, or lovely, sweet, was so terrifying because you're exposed suddenly. Well, it seems to me that after the vomit scene, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I mean, you had, I mean, that, I think, represented the... You know, yeah. Uh, beyond that, you had a change because that was the... What's this? Uh, <laughs>
Were you, uh, were you, did you contribute at all to that scene in terms of uh, no, reception t- or anything? That no, it was Terry such, Jones, Terry and Mike. Such an amazing, yeah. amazing scene. No, I, I, I laughed harder about it the next day than I yeah. did when I was there. I, I think all I could say, that my part was that I defended that against the, the others who wanted to get it out of the film. Uh, it was hard to get that into the into the, the script because some of the others felt it was just a bit too too rough. So my vote, I think, was the it was useful in keeping it in. I just it's so funny. I mean, it's just. I mean, that's it's also this thing which is trying to find out how far you can go, and I don't know how far you can go until until you go. That's it was interesting. It's like the pirate film at the beginning because that was my little baby, you know, the crimson permanent thing, and eventually. You, you go as far as you can, and then you go over the edge of the world. And I know I, the only way you know over the edge of the world is is when you're going over it, <laughs> and it's always too late. But I like the idea of, of trying to find it, where that is. Uh, uh, I don't know. This I think the group we're probably nastier together than we are separate. Uh-huh. I think separate we're we're a bit less confident, or we're less. The confidence that's bred in the group is is, is is what kept it going, I think, because a lot of people were trying to stop us, but the sick of us kept encouraging the others to keep going, how's it go? And I, but I, I really like, I mean, it's like in Brazil to actually do something that was romantic, was, you know, not what comes naturally to me and what I, you know, what I do for a living. <laughs> in real yeah. life it may, but it's not. And, and that was, to me, really exciting to do that, to just, to see if I could do it, to try to get people to... I mean, yeah, the fact that I can get people to cry is, you know, to me, a major achievement. <laughs> Other filmmakers just do it, you know, uh, it, without even thinking. I get the old weepy, I get the hankies out. Of, and I just and I just was keen to try to do it within the context of a film like that, where you're doing that. And, somehow, and that's where Jonathan is so brilliant in it. He, he pulls you into it, you, if, if you can get pulled into it emotionally. Thank you. He is... Uh, uh, just crazy. Yeah, he's. Uh, I'm so happy, um, among other things, that, that he'll get and have gotten the attention. The performance he gave in comedians, uh, uh, that has to be, what, 10, 11 yeah, years yeah. ago? Yeah, yeah. Was, was absolutely one of the most astonishing performances I've ever seen or ever will see. Was that in New York? He saw yeah, it. yeah. yeah. Um, just amazing. Um, I never did get to see his Hamlet. Oh, but, uh, that was a breath. I mean, I think that was the moment I decided he had to be. He was the one I was going to write Brazil for because uh-huh. Hamlet with laughs is not what you normally expect. I mean, he had the audience pissing themselves. Really? Oh, it was so funny, and for that reason, it was twice as tragic. It was he would do things that were just un. He did uh, Alas, poor York. Like a ventriloquist act with a skull. And, and uh, it was unbelievable. And uh, his the the ghost scene, I don't know if you heard how it was, he did it. It was like uh, Hamlet meets, meets the exorcist. Because yeah. he, was, he was possessed by his father's voice. <coughs> his voice would come out. And he, he was turning lobster red and strangling. And in his own voice would come back, and he, he was doing the dialogue with himself. And it was well, the terrifying. Well, the rain, I mean, just within the space of two films, I mean, his range from The Plowman's Launch, which was such a kind of, you know, cynical mm, kind of yeah. hard-edged uh, to, to this sweetness. Mm. Did, did you ever see 
something wicked this way comes. No, I never did. Wait, Mephistopheles. He's, yeah. he's again. I haven't seen the doctors and the devils. That was. He plays with a Burke, one of either Burke or Hare. Now, what about Michael? Um, is he? Would you say he's the, the closest to you among the Python people? Or I mean, he's, he was in Jabberwocky, mm. and uh, I he's he the was closest geographically. Geographically, <laughs> Mike is Mike is the most enjoyable to work with. He's he's so prolific. He's so genuinely funny, and yeah. he's not got an ego that's difficult to deal with. I kind of see you guys. Excuse me. I kind of mm. see you guys. You know, as the Fleetwood Mac uh, <laughs> of a comedy, in that uh, you go off and you'll do yours, and then we well, don't want to yeah. do another Python. Yeah. Well, yeah. Somebody's out of sorts, and you come back and do it. And, uh, but meanwhile, I mean, when you're working on your own stuff, I just assume that mm. you get a lot of you know feedback from each other and support it, and all that. Yeah, stuff. it's it's not as much as as you'd think. It's there if we choose it. But everybody being English, they're quite reserved. And so it's, uh -huh. the other day, I mean, I was asked to go and see this new film John's done that Michael Frayn wrote called Clockwise. And I couldn't make it, but it was sort of a hesitant uh, sort of invitation, you know. You just, you know, find some time. I'd like to get your, your thoughts on it. And, and it's a bit like that. Terry Jones and I are a lot alike in sort of the same sort of energy and, and anger and... and, and pretentiousness <laughs> and, and, uh, and and that's why you know he used to write with Mike and that's why I work because Mike balances us I mean we're the ones that are um, monomaniacal and um, and Mike is just sort of floating around the place and and Mike what Mike needs is direction he needs somebody who's focused on something and then all of this amazing ability that's I don't know where he gets it from he's, he's to me Mysterious that way. I don't know where it comes from. All those characters, all the the nonsense in his brain. Well, he well po possibly because you were the least visible of the members. You it seems have been able fairly successfully to establish an identity away from. Yeah. I mean, Jabberwocky. I think people probably went with Pythonesque expectations. Well, that was that was uh, the work of a real idiot. Because how can anybody? You know, make a film immediately after Holy Grail, a medieval comedy starring Michael Palin, directed by Terry Gilliam, with Terry Jones opening it, with obvious joke, and and not be compared with Holy Grail. That's how naive and or it might have been arrogant. I think. I think again, that was the one, the challenging the audience. Just how how sensitive, intelligent are you? Can you distinguish this from the real thing? Or I mean, and what was nice was the Jabberwocky, and when it played in countries that didn't know, didn't know Holy Grail. Got terrific reviews. Everywhere else, of course, it was compared. Ah, another comedy out of Monty Python. Same old rubbish. It's not as funny. And but Jabberwocky was never meant to be. I was, but it was that that silly thing of trying to uh, sail as close to the wind as possible, and then you get shot down. And I, maybe I, I think I'm designing my life so I always can remain angry at something, <laughs> at some injustice being done, yeah. usually to me. <laughs> film in a way, I haven't quite thought this through, but there's a kind of mid-Atlantic quality um, beyond combined having American and British actors yeah, yeah. and having De Niro in the part he was in, but uh, it just had me thinking, wondering um, like what American qualities I mean just how your Americanism works into this and how yeah. it plays against 
whoever, you know, the other people you work yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, it's, it is mainly about America. It's primarily about America. It's got, it's tempered by a British experience and, you know, and, and a slightly British viewpoint or America seen from a distance. But, I mean, the whole thing about ambition, about corporate bureau- bureaucracy, uh, uh, corporate irresponsibility where you avoid responsibility, fantasy, existence, um, search for eternal youth via plastic surgery, um, an overcomplicated system. It's things like, you know, the, the, it, Sam's attitude to all the goodies. I mean, everybody's attitude. They all want the goodies that Central Service provides, so they're willing to get these great pipes, ducts ramming right through beautiful architecture. I mean, it's, just, it's that. There's a lot of that. To, it's, um, I don't know, it's so clearly American to me. That's what's so weird about to it. you, but I'll, I'll, I'll bet you anything. No, no, I, no I've American heard enough people. The yeah. will, will easily deflect this away from their own uh, collective which I, identity. Yeah, kind of, uh, but which it may be all right because Americans can't take the truth very clearly stated. In a way, I think that's what, what was interesting about Python because although it was British, the things we were saying in some cases were very applicable, but it, by abstracting it a little bit, by making, putting English accents on it, it was safer. You could deal with it, but it, but it does work. It's 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 wonders. I mean, it does change. It's insidious that way. At least it makes people think in certain ways. That if it's the thing about America is people, there's so many people trying to ram things down your throat all the time, and I like the idea of if it is about America by by disguising it as as it is, and having a lot of British actors and making it so abstract in a sense uh, and non-realistic that one can take the the message without feeling threatened and yet maybe it'll sink in some of the ideas in there because in all my dealings with Universal have been just like with the ministry in yeah, there I was going to suggest that. I mean it's, it has been so close it's been terrifying and it's the same sort of I don't know it's people lines like you know Sam we've always been close haven't we until all this blows over just stay away from me I've been hearing that for some time from the people who had the most to gain by the success of Brazil. They've done that. People who started the ball rolling about Brazil within the company. When the shit started flying, they just ducked and they stayed very, very low until it became clear who the winners were and then suddenly are back up there. Mm-hmm. Great, our project, our baby, let's go. <laughs> you, know, you can see it. It's, it's awful. And, uh, and, and even you know, someone like Sid Scheinberg things he was saying was unfortunately the scene cut out with Mr. Helpman uh, when Sam's in a cell before uh, the pullback into the torture room and and he says uh, you know so even I have to play the game Sam you know uh, i.e. that even he isn't responsible bil- responsible everybody seems to be shunning responsibility and here's the, the boss but he is the deputy minister so one assumes there's a minister now, Sid, who turns out to be the deputy minister, because Lou Wasserman is the minister, yeah. is saying, well, you know, I have responsibility to the company. You know, I mean, I've got to look out for these interests. You know, it's not me personally. I like the film. But, and it's well, that. It's an easy, yeah, it's an easy. And, and there was nobody else there that was stopping it coming out. There was nobody. They all, and everybody else kept saying, you know, now, Sid, you know, Sid's not going to let it go. And, and nobody was going to go in the room and say, Sid, you're out of your fucking mind. You realize what this is doing to the company? <laughs> Nobody would do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Lord knows the Python has done enough of those boardrooms. <laughs> uh, I guess the parody's uh, 
Where there was a really good one in uh, this movie, Head Office. Uh, it's really is the good stuff in it? Strange and dark. I, I think it's yeah. like a, a, a fairly interesting movie. Is it about a corporation? Yeah, 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 Monody's in multinational. Yeah. Uh, so, well, then I'm, I'm, am I correct in assuming that you um, purposefully uh, went for an American actress to play that part? Or was that well, the girl. Was she just yeah, no, it, a bit of it was to make, just to ease a few things, make life easier for Arden Milshon, the producer, by having a couple Americans in there. It suddenly wasn't a British picture because again they keep wanting to do that out mm-hmm. there. They, British picture in British pictures, of course, don't work. Ho ho ho! Yeah. Gandhi, Church of Fire, on we go. All the Python films, and yet every time if you put a, together a cast and it's and there aren't any Americans in it, they they say it's a British picture. So I agreed with Arnon. Okay, we'll make the girl American. It didn't make any difference to me in, in a way. It helped to keep it from feeling like this is Britain, mm. and uh, and her attitude, her attitude could be an American attitude. It's she's tougher and she's on the go, where Sam is the more British. He's the one avoiding anything, not really getting involved, and he's more timid. She's the ballsy one, and De Niro again the same thing. And Ma- Catherine was at the end of Time Bandits. I just told her I had this part that I was thinking about of a woman who you know, mm-hmm. starts seventy five and gets younger, and said, and she said. I'm in. <laughs> well, it was, it was the connection, the De Niro connection, I assume, was from the producer having worked yeah, with yeah. Uh, the Leone movie. And, and King of Comedy so as well. He produced oh, that oh, as well, yeah. That, yeah. So De Niro, was, well, that's, that was good of him to do it. I mean, it was a smallish, you know. Well, he was, uh, it, it, it was interesting because interesting, he wasn't doing it as a favor. He did uh, it because it was intriguing. To uh, have, it was the first time, I think, in, in, in years for him to be in a part that the, the whole weight of the film wasn't on his shoulders. I mean, we had the money, it had nothing to do, because it was well into the casting when we got around to De Niro. We had every, most of the film cast, and uh, and we thought of it, I mean, it was it was more of a joke than anything. He said, oh, Oscar Bobby, and that sort of thing, how, how, how many people do want to do that? <laughs> and and he was he was intrigued enough. And uh, and what's, you know, again, what's interesting, and I wasn't totally sure if I wanted you know, somebody as, as big as De Niro in there because there's always problems associated with big stars. You end up, the whole film starts swinging around their availability or whatever because they're always busy. And I try not to get involved in that too often. Uh, but in the end, you know, when, like when the battle with Universal was going on and he you know, went on CBS News with me in the morning, he doesn't go out for his own films. He doesn't, but came to the rescue, just like Tuttle. He did the job. He's... He's a very honorable man, <laughs> and, uh, and his agent and all sorts of people saying, "Don't do it. You know, don't get involved. This is bad. This is stay away from this one." He said, yeah, they're, they're my friends. It's a good film. This is wrong, and I'll come and help you. You've been listening to a conversation with the indefatigable and sometimes undefendable Terry Gilliam. Thanks to Rick Riggs and Handwritten Studios for the production work and Jeff Bradfield for the music. On our next podcast, I'll chat with another controversial director, Bernardo Bertolucci, whose last tango in Paris is still argued about decades after it was made. Join me. I'm Lloyd Sachs.